Hey there, it's Tavis again. Now this is part three of the Dr. Charles Kohlhaas interview series recorded a couple of years back. In this episode, Dr. Kohlhaas talks about what policy changes he would make if he was limitlessly powerful over the U.S. energy policy. This also transitions into a talk about the U.S. relationship with foreign nations and how those energy policies interact. Remember, this was recorded a few years ago, so that's why some of the information be a little bit dated, but most of it is incredibly valuable. So, without further ado, enjoy the final part of the Dr. Charles Kohlhaas series from deep within our content vault. So in the first part, I guess in the first two parts of this interview, we heard about where the oil field was, yep. how it got there, yep. and now I really want to get into where it's going. And we've learned that the, each administration has kind of had their own downfalls, from Kissinger and the oil crisis to the July 2008 oil spike. No one really quite knew why the price was up there. If I was to say Dr. Charles Kohlhaas is now the energy czar in the United States, what what would you do going forward to kind of help fix the, the, the policy issues we're seeing right now? Well, one of the things we have to get into is we have to wonder what is what is the role of government here? I mean, the United States has um, a strong bias toward free enterprise and leaving companies alone to carry on commercial transactions. And that, that means that we try to keep regulation to a minimum. Uh, we want to have uh, a regulatory environment that creates fairness and creates uh, um, a competitive environment which is fair to everybody. And, and of course that involves regulating the environmental impacts and establishing regulations. So the United States walks a, a balance between how much regulation is enough, how much is needed, and how much is fair. And we can't do too much because we don't like to stymie uh, free enterprise from uh, what it does and what it does best, which is innovate and create prosperity in this country. And we do it through capitalism, which is the most successful uh, industry at doing it. On the other hand, uh, we do see a role for government in some regulation. And one of the problems in the oil business I see domestically is the volatility of the pricing. The volatility of the pricing makes it difficult for investors because they're not sure whether the price is going to stay up. They're not sure whether the return they're going to get on it is something that they can uh, plan on with confidence. And it's also uh, difficult for the consumers and it's difficult for industry and manufacturing who depend on uh, pricing, uh, simple things like the airlines and trucking industries and manufacturing. To have the price of fuel going up and down and back and forth all the time is difficult. So you think, what could, what could uh, an energy czar do? Uh, and some of it might be influence, uh, but try to establish the price. One of the things I've thought of is the fact that the um, trading contract, which was established, as I mentioned, in 1983, the contract started in March 1983. It's when they started trading on NYMEX, correct? That's right. And it's, it's been the same ever since. And it was set up as a 1,000-barrel contract trading on uh, West Texas Intermediate Oil in a tank in Cushing, Oklahoma. 
And I wondered, do, could we take the volatility out if we were to modify that contract? Suppose we made it a 10,000 barrel contract. Or suppose we made it for the next six month uh, string and said, okay, it's not going to be a single maturity date. Or we establish a delay between the time that trading ends and the maturity date. Um, I, I've wondered if those things could possibly take some of the volatility out and those might be beneficial. They would certainly be worth considering and it's something that uh, wouldn't necessarily have to dictate it, but we might be able to work with people and make some modifications there in the contract or in the trading in some way to alleviate the volatility. So what would actually increasing the contract size from 1,000 to 10,000 do? Would it just allow m more? Yeah, I guess what would it? I, it would I can't take out some of the speculators. See, the trading, you have people who trade physical, large physical contracts. And those contracts are um, tanker loads, for instance. And they're traded on the high seas. Sometimes a tanker load from the time it leaves... It's a uh, port where, where it loads up to the point where it unloads, it'll change ownership more several times possibly. It may even change destinations. And, um, and, but now we're getting into the international part of it, but the, the relationship between the international trading and the domestic contract is intimate. And, and because the oil price and oil trading is done on a fungible market by by open outcry, so to speak. That's an old expression. Now it's all done electronically, but people still refer to it as open outcry. And and because it's done that way, you've got an intimate interaction between the international financial markets and the domestic trading on the NYMEX and pricing system. And if we could establish some way of modifying that in order to take the volatility out for the benefit of, of the United States economy, then I think we should do it. Could it, could it be as simple as maybe getting together with you know, Canada and Mexico and, and, and trying to do a lot more collaboration? Because between, with those three countries, it's about half of the world's oil production, if I'm not mistaken. If you step into the... Uh, international system and decide what are all the things that could be done internationally, then one of the, one of the things that might develop here would be to, if, if you were an energy czar, as you say, it might be to sit down with the companies and say, what can we do to help you? And one of the things that might do would be to encourage them to get into long-term supply contracts. And one of the things to go back and think about is back before uh, the pricing system was changed so much in the 1970s and we wound up with the open trading on the NYMEX, is that when the oil companies ran things in the early part of the 20th century, uh, things got a little, uh, they were also hectic at that point. And the oil companies would go out and they would produce oil fields wide open they would, they would flood the market with oil, the price would crash, then they'd run short, and the price would go up. And some of the stories about those early days were 
are, are rather flamboyant. And it's that fun. famous picture of you. There's like six Derricks, and you can just walk from Derrick to Derrick. Right. And like it was like I think right. it was taken like 1930, 1940 in the Permian. Right. And I grew up in a town where you could jump from one Derrick floor to the next. Wow. There were something like eight thousand wooden Derricks in town. And, but what happened was that in the early 1930s, uh, some of the uh, states actually established martial law in the oil fields for a while to get control of it. And the, the price variations were just too much, too fast, and, and it wasn't good for the economy. And Texas established uh, oil regulation under the Railroad Commission. And they did that because at that time, nearly all the oil was transported by rail. So the Railroad Commission came in, established a system of allocating production among the wells and restricting it. It was called proration. And that system lasted for 40 years. And they regulated it tightly in Texas. And at that time, Texas was a major producing state. Well, it still is. But at that time, they produced far more than they do now. They produced far more than half the oil in the United States. And the adjoining states, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Kansas, all established regulatory systems that followed it. And what they did is they took nominations from the refining companies, which in those days were mostly the majors, and they took nominations as to how much oil they needed for their market. And they allocated that out and came up with a proration system per well. And they said, all right, whatever the capacity of the well is, you can produce such and such percent of it. And it was done, uh, there were two or three ways by, by which they uh, allowed that. Uh, they had some exemptions. If the wells made less than five barrels a day and were stripper wells, why those were exempt from proration. And uh, secondary recovery projects were exempt, and there were a few others. But um, most of the oil was allocated that way. Well, as in the late 1960s, when uh, the oil business uh, in the United States, or when the demand reached the limit of the business of the oil business to produce and the production capacity that those proration restrictions were removed and they've never been reimposed. OPEC actually modeled itself originally on the Railroad Commission. And they actually, after the price crash and after oil started trading in the early 1980s and the price crash in 1986, as, as I already said, you had 20 years in which the industry worked off the surplus capacities that were developed during the 1970s. Now, a lot of things happened during that time, and one of the things that happened was the old business model of integrated companies pretty much disappeared. And uh, most of the companies uh, merged, sold off, were bought off, and so on. And now, out of all those 30 to 40 integrated oil and gas companies we had in the United States, you've got two left, Exxon and Chevron. And, and uh, because that, that model of controlling the, the exploration, the development, the production, the refining, and the marketing uh, was no longer necessary or valid.
Now, the other thing that happened during that time is that the OPEC, you say, how did, how did you maintain a stable price during that time? OPEC had a system of quotas, and they maintained those quotas. Uh, they weren't too good in, uh, in details. Some of the companies, countries cheated, and some did this and some did that. There were a few spike. There was a spike up for the Gulf War in 1990. There was a spike down in 1998, and uh, due to geopolitical events. But basically, uh, they maintained a quota system over that 20-year period. Now they're back to it again. Yeah, no, their OPEC is, is making a lot of changes, especially with the, the recent events. So back to, I, I, I guess I have a policy question here. So there are multiple different, we have the Secretary of Energy or the Department of Energy. We have the Department of Interior. We have, and both of them, you would think deal in, you think energy deals with oil and um, the interior deals with land. But it's almost that interior deals mostly with all of the federal leases and the secretary of energy doesn't have very little to do with oil outside of controlling the energy administration the the uh, secretary of energy right now mainly manages the national laboratories and uh, those laboratories are there are many i mean there's sandia down in albuquerque there's lawrence livermore there's los alamos uh, the old labs that developed the uh, Manhattan Project and the nuclear bomb during World War II. Rocky there's, Flats up here, there's, NREL. There's Rocky Flats, the National Renewable Energy Lab here in Golden. Uh, that's uh, run by the Secretary of Energy. Uh, they also keep the data. Uh, now, if you're really going to have an impact on the energy markets and on the oil markets, you have to consider the international markets. And at that point, uh, you'd have to step above just being an energy czar in the U.S., I think, because you're going to involve foreign policy. You're going to involve uh, all types of uh, different aspects of government, which would have to be coordinated. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. We've already talked about the fact when the Federal Reserve um, stop quantitative easing in 2014, that caused the oil price to come down. And the oil price coming down, it eventually it cut the revenues of Russia and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela in half, more than that for a period of time. And, uh, but let's just say roughly half. That's a huge impact on various countries. Did the Federal Reserve consider that before they uh, stop quantitative easing? No, if you go back and look at their considerations, they I don't think they look at the effect it's going to have. If they stop quantitative easing in the United States, what is that going to do to the economy of Russia? I don't think that is a factor. And if you were going to establish, uh, if you were an energy czar, uh, considering the international markets, you'd have to find a way to coordinate U.S. efforts in the Federal Reserve, for instance, in the Treasury Department, in the Foreign Policy, the State Department, etc., so that those were all coordinated into one effort to, for the benefit uh, to maintain the security and the prosperity of the American people. 
So who who's the big who's then the biggest country we need to get on a better relationship with them when it comes to oil? Is it Russia? Is it someone in the Middle East? Is it maybe a South American country? Well, right now the Middle East is in a lot of turmoil, and uh, the Russians are certainly moving in and establishing a strong presence there. Uh, Middle Eastern policy is really a mess right now, and it's not doing too well. Um, personally, here again, we have to stop and think, I mean, what is what is the role of the United States government in dealing with um, foreign governments over oil? Uh, one thing we would we should consider, I think, is at least backing up our own companies. Uh, one of the worst, most egregious examples of not doing that was when the uh, Saudi Arabia wanted to push out the American companies that owned Aramco, and we actually sent a um, undersecretary of state over to assure them that the United States government would not support the American companies in those negotiations. Now that was done on the idea that the government's got not going to interfere in commercial transactions. But as Kissinger said, he said, you know, he said on a, uh, based on the theology of free enterprise and free markets, we left the oil companies defenseless. And they still do that. Uh, the United States does not get involved. But if you're an American oil company and you're working in a foreign country and you have a dispute with a foreign government or with a company owned or influenced or controlled by a foreign government, you're at a disadvantage if you don't have your own government ready to back you up. And that doesn't make, a, make any difference how much money you've got or how much uh, influence you think you have. Uh, those people are in control. And if your own government doesn't back you up, then you're going to lose. Yeah, I remember uh, one of our professors we had at Mines, he was working for Exxon at the time when Ecuador fined them like $20 billion. And the United States government didn't back them up. They just told Exxon to leave. And I don't know if the standoff has been disputed or not, but they got fined over $20 billion for by the government just for operating in the country because they did it, I think, unsafely. Um. What happened there was Chevron, not Exxon. Oh, it was Chevron, excuse yeah. me. And uh, what happened there and the whole thing was rather messy uh, because Texaco had the fields where the dispute was. And when Texaco abandoned the fields, uh, they cleaned the area up and then um, and they got clearance and were cleared out from the Ecuadorian government. Now, Here's where it gets a little fuzzy. Somebody, and and it's believed to have been some of the Ecuadorian companies themselves, went in there and produced that field some more and made a mess. Chevron bought Texaco. And so Chevron wound up on the hook, and people tried to claim that Chevron was liable for the mess. Okay. And uh, now the whole thing resolved into... Uh, recently a major corruption thing because the judge finally admitted that he was 
the judge in Ecuador admitted that he got paid off to make that decision. Oh, shocker there. Yeah, and that drew in a couple of American law firms, and the whole thing is, I don't think, quite all resolved yet, but it, it came out that Chevron was really uh, not the one. But if you're not if you're not Chevron to fight these battles, oh yeah, uh, you can't do it. If you're, uh, I mean, Chevron fortunately had the deep pockets enough to to carry that through and the persistence because it took years, and uh, but not every company can do that. And if your own government won't support you, you're, and I, and I, and that's just in competitive situations as well. Uh, where people realize that uh, if the United States government's going to back up an American company, why then you can lose. Do you think you'd be almost setting up like an, an almost just a insurance pool that you paid into so that if you're for independence operating in other countries, if they happen to get in disputes, that there's almost, they've been paying into an insurance policy that then can be used for paying for legal fees and have some sort of representation from a kind of an official level? Oh, you can do that. It's called political risk insurance. Okay. And uh, and you can take policies out on it, and it's interesting to touch it out and talk to the insurance companies and find out what their analysis of the local situation is. Uh, interesting. Because they're pretty, uh, they're pretty astute on that type of thing. Insurance companies always have a different viewpoint than other people do. And... Uh, one time I was getting ready to take a rig down to Guatemala and the insurance company we were talking to informed us there was 65 kilometers from the Belize border to a junction in Guatemala that they considered the most dangerous road in the Western Hemisphere. And, and I asked them, I said, uh, oh, what do we do about that? And they said, well, don't worry, we have our own SWAT team and helicopter support, which uh, we use for various purposes. and and we'll have it there. Wow. And I asked, I said, well, what's that going to cost me? And they said, well, this is insurance. Realize that the premium is a lot less with them than it is without them. <laughs> so insurance companies always are interesting people to talk to about that type of risk. Yeah, no, interesting. That might be a, a good thing about doing that for companies to go international. I kind of want to take a step back here and, and, and say the policy, obviously, we, 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 we've learned here, needs to change. It needs to be updated. It needs to be modernized. Um, yeah. But in terms of... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, when you talk internationally, I, I mean, yeah. You brought up Canada and Mexico. One of the easy things would be to sit down and work out some long-term relationships there on pricing, establish, mm -hmm. trying to establish a sta stable price, long-term supply, and and uh, pur purchase and supply contracts between the two. Uh, most people don't know. We have a lot of pipelines crossing the border. We, I think there's five pipelines right now taking gas to Mexico, American gas, and we import oil from them. And if we could uh, formalize that a bit and give the Mexicans some assurance of a stable price, I think, I think they'd appreciate that. And we could do the same thing with Canada because we import oil from Mexico and Canada right now, uh, and uh, establishing a stable, stable price, I think, would be uh, to the benefit of both Canada, Mexico, and us. We could expand that uh, with other people, in the, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, I think, and, 
maybe move ourselves a bit out of the turmoil in the Middle East and, and some of the other relationships, which right now are really unstable. And that would, I would assume that would help with the volatility now that you, if assuming that all the, now we're pricing based off a conglomerate of countries versus just sure. one, and then you're reliant on what's going on in another country that you have zero control over. Sure. And uh, that's it. You establish, as I say, long-term supply contracts. You have a price in there. Uh, that price could be adjusted for inflation or whatever else might be necessary and, uh, and have some flexibility on the margins, but uh, at least have the core contract, uh, a stable long-term uh, contract supply and at a, at a price that everybody agreed to and just let the world price fluctuate up and down with wars and revolutions and whatever else happens. Yeah, so I guess where I was trying to get earlier is, so we've talked a lot about policy. We understand it needs to change and it needs to be updated and modernized. Um, and I think you've done a really good job of laying out what needs to happen. Looking at just the, 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 the oil industry in general, where do you see it going in the next, I, I guess, 10 to 15 years outside of the policy? I, I We just actually... Uh, this company, Rare Petrol, we just got back from a drone conference. And while it wasn't specifically for the oil industry, I was sitting there thinking of 10 different applications that drones could be used both on onshore and offshore rigs. I didn't know if there's a particular technology or particular segment that's really coming up in the oil industry right now that has you excited for the future. Well, the technological advancements right now are are amazing. And uh, I, I'm continually... Uh, amazed at what people are accomplishing and, and a lot of this is with uh, the ad advantages of the computers and data processing and so on. It's also um, a large part of it's with respect to data acquisition. I mean we get data out of the bottom of a well now during drilling and 20 years ago that was just something that was dreamed about but not a fact. And, and to be able to run your logs while you're drilling, to be able to interpret the rock properties and all this type of thing while you're drilling, and, and to be able to steer the well from a remote position. Uh, that's, that's something that we dreamed about a long time ago. And a lot of these things were dreamed about. I mean, I talked to the geophysicists and what they're doing with the microseismic work and the 3D seismic, and, is something that 50 years ago people would have dearly left to run 3D seismic and they knew they needed to and they knew it would be helpful and, and they knew how to interpret it but they weren't able to do it. Uh, the computations were so massive and, and uh, that they couldn't do it. it and with the advent of the computers now they can. And it's a big difference and the same thing with the microseismic. Let's face it, when people started developing things like the Barnett Shale and the Bakken and the, and the uh, Permian Basin, going back into the Permian Basin, which is a well-defined geologic basin, it's been, been there, people have been producing out of it since the 1920s and 30s. Those, those are well-defined. Well, what happened? The exploration budgets uh, disappeared. People said, oh, we don't need to go look for oil. We know where it is. All we need to do is figure out how to get it out economically with a horizontal drilling and multi-stage fracturing. 
Well, the exploration budgets disappeared. So what have the geophysicists done? They went from running big exploration seismic surveys to running microseismic to tell you where to fracture and where your fracture went. And they're good at it. Yeah, no, that that's incredible, really, what kind of the transition from where it was to what we are now. And I think going into the future, it's only going to... I mean, I, speaking from... I just got back from this drone conference, so I'm kind of in this oil field drone mood. But the just where that industry was five years ago to now what they're doing now, it blew my mind. And like I said, there was probably 10 to 15 things that I could, that I think I, in five years that drones could be doing in the oil field from, you know, offshore safety manipulations to inspections to oil spills. So I, I, I just kind of want to bring up that because that's, it's kind of just fresh on my mind as we just got back to it. There are certain companies like, like what we are, Rare Petro and, we talked to the CEO of Heal Systems last week, Jeff Sapanja, who are attacking certain areas like slug mitigation. Uh, Rare Petro, we're looking, we're attempting to just bring modern technology into the field. Is there a place for those type of companies going into the future? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And uh, it always has been. I mean, this is a, this is an industry that is not as quick in some ways as it should be about adopting new technology but uh, it's getting again. it's getting better at it <laughs> and and that's because people are always worried about trying a new technology on their well because they're afraid that it'll have a negative impact and their production will go down and then they'll be in all kinds of trouble and uh, so they're a bit fearful about it but uh, another business model is if you really believe in your technology, get some wells and use use them on your own wells, and get the benefits yourself. It would be a, you. I mean, that philosophy and that mindset would you would cut R and D time R and D time down tremendously because then you have real time analysis of hey, not only do we make this sensor, but we've tried it and here was pre, here was post production. So I, I think that's a an avenue that would be really fascinating to explore. Yep. Yep. It is, it is, and uh, now there's all sorts of technologies that are going to impact the business as well. I mean, if you've got self-driving cars and all the cars go to electrical and you've got solar power and so on, uh, how much that's going to impact and how fast. Uh, there are a lot of predictions out there. I don't think oil and gas are going to go away. Mm -hmm. uh, I still think they're going to be a major part of the energy mix for at least a half century to go. Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that I remember I, I interned one summer up in Wyoming and, and I saw a breakdown of actually of a barrel of oil, how much goes to gasoline, how much goes to plastics. And I had no idea the amount of oil that goes into plastics. It's almost more than half a barrel of everyone produced actually goes into plastics. It's only about, I think, 10 gallons out of the 42 gallon barrel actually goes towards refining in gasoline? Uh, the breakdown might know. not be exactly, yeah. but it's the plastics is a, almost a much bigger portion of what the oil is used for than the actual gasoline, which I it, found very interesting. It's a big part of it, yeah. Especially, especially the uh, condensates and the higher gravity cuts and uh, what you get from the liquids that are produced with gas. Very interesting. Well, I just want to thank you for coming in and taking the time to sit down with us. You know, over these three parts, I've learned so much. I hope everyone who's going to listen to this has learned has learned a lot. Just it's just been so fascinating where the oil and like 
like the three questions you posed. Where was the oil industry? How did we get there? And then this last part, what do we see going to the future? I just, again, wanted to thank you for coming in and being able to do this uh, do this with us. And, and we look forward to having you on again. Okay. Very good. Well, thank, thank you, you very you. much. Look forward to it. All right. And that is the end of the entire series. If you missed the first two parts, please go to rarepetro.com. You can search Legacy or Kohlhaas, K-O-H-L-H-A-A-S, and you should be able to find everything. I mean, I highly encourage you to do it. It is wildly informative, and it's a great look from someone who has spent so many years in the industry. So, again, rarepetro.com, hit that search bar, find the rest of these interviews, and get yourself learned up. Got plenty of more content on the website, too, so please show yourself around. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.